I'm Ellen Liebeter. I'm Jake Morecambe. This is Think Sustainability, where we look at practical solutions for a better planet. Today on the show, we're looking at coral bleaching. Now, Jake, you know how much I love my coral. Reef queen. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And I'm actually, I've been really upset about the extent of coral bleaching on the Great Barrier Reef, but you've actually found out that all may not be as bad as we think it is. Yeah. Corals actually have the potential to recover. And we've only found this out post the El Nino event, which started at the beginning of the year. But this isn't the case for all corals, specifically in the Great Barrier Reef, where there's been a massive mortality. So coming up a little bit later in the show, we're going to speak to a reef diver to find out exactly what they're looking like right now. And also some more good news about stuff that I might be able to do with my food scraps. Yeah, instead of just composting or worm farming them or or giving them to your pet worms, which you still need to do, by the way. (laughs) So do you. Those two things aside, what if we were able to find uses for them which we wouldn't think imaginable and were only able to unlock their potential through chemistry? Chemistry? Chemistry. And, And fruit? I thought it was all about chemistry and chemicals, but I am very much looking forward to being corrected on that. But up first on the show... Objection! They are, they're very rarefied atmospheres, actually. Um, there's certain legal protocols around, you know, every time you enter the courtroom, you have to bow to the judge. I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God. I do. The language is very different. It's it's heightened. It's it's um, sometimes quite complex and complicated to follow. Question, Senator. Why was Linda Morelli granted these concessions? Mr. Chief Justice, I have extended... It's out of the everyday, but it's out of the everyday for a reason. This is Emma Rowden, and Emma's not a lawyer, she's not a criminal, but she spends a lot of time in courtrooms. Emma is from the School of Architecture at the University of Technology, Sydney, and her recent research is looking into designing the space of law. We want these spaces to be different because things that are happening in there are different. The orchestra of how how the interactions take place are very, um, are very carefully thought through. Even the journey to the courtroom, you have judges come separately in separate entrance, which is different again to the jury. The jury need to be seen as coming in separate from the judge. You know, I think the costume helps. So you've got the judge in their robes and, and the lawyers. And I mean, those costumes give some level of anonymity. In fact, one judge told me that his wife had walked past him once when he was in his wig and gown and hadn't recognised him <laughs> at all. So, But, I mean, you know, it just goes to show the level of... It's, it's a way it's putting on the office, you know, by putting on the robes and the gown. It's a way of saying, you know, I'm not this particular person, but I'm assuming an office for on behalf of the state, you know. Mm. I'm performing a duty on behalf of society. Do you think that, that this sort of orchestra play in the courtroom is facilitated through this architectural design? Definitely, absolutely, yeah. The courtroom is a space built on ritual. The design, the building, the orchestra inside play to a deeply rooted legal history. But Emma says history could soon be rewritten. 
And the other thing with in a criminal courtroom is the video link room. <laughs> It's essentially abolishing the courtroom space. Well, it, it depends. Right now it's not, in so much as trials are still happening in courtrooms, but certain participants are being linked remotely from a remote location through video link technology. Where are these, like, like what do you mean remote location, like anywhere? Anywhere. Well, not quite anywhere, but basically anywhere where you can find a room with adequate video link technology. Um, I know some courts have used Skype. <laughs> surprisingly. <laughs> um, but, you know, that's not standard practice. But basically, you know, you need to have the right equipment and the right setup. You know, you can understand why government has leapt on this as a possible way of a, it's, you know, it's a sustainable way of getting bodies to particular places virtually um, that they need to be without transporting. And it cuts the costs as well. And if you say you're trying to link up with an expert that's from overseas, you then suddenly don't have an international airfare, mm. the expense of hotel rooms and so forth. And also it's more convenient for that person. You know, they don't have to upend their life and and come to appear in a court case. So you can definitely see the advantages. Um, but I think for me, the concern is how it's been implemented mm. in, in that respect. So does it still require, like, the judge and everyone, are they are they still at the court? Where are they? Yeah, so basically, say it's an expert linking in to give evidence. Everybody else is in the courtroom. It's just their, their face appears on a screen. So essentially, it would still require that space that's of the right, courtroom. That's right, that's um, right. At, at the moment, right? But, you know, some sort of futurists are sort of predict, predicting <laughs> the virtual court where, you know, judges will link up in this way, lawyers will from their chambers... Um, defendants from where they are in, mm. in either in a romance centre or prison. That's the futuristic yeah. <laughs> kind of vision for <laughs> this. But yeah. Well, or dystopian, <laughs> one might argue. But, you know, that's certainly technically possible. And, in fact, um, we did a series of exercises when where we actually went in and tested the link for ourselves. So I would sit in one room and my colleague would sit in the courtroom. And, we'd, in fact, we had one um, expert witness tell us that they were watching a colleague and they were absolutely shocked at how how their colleague came across as looking shifty because their eyes were flicking from one screen to the other as they were looking at the bar table and the judge on their side. Right. But actually to the courtroom, it just looked like their eyes were flicking back and forth and looked like they didn't know what they were doing or, you know. So it was, it was interesting how those impressions can actually, um, you know, actually distort potentially somebody's position. And then we've actually seen also people appearing by prison link um, video links where maybe the zoom of the camera hasn't been quite right so that the person's head is on the bottom half of the screen. You can see a doorway behind them with a glass panel with people with clipboards behind them sort of mm. wandering past. And it gives, you know, it's it's like um, a, a colleague of mine, Carolyn McKay, has done some really fascinating work actually interviewing defendants on, on their experiences of video link. And um, the kinds of things they've been, you know, saying in this um, study are really fascinating. The fact that they're aware of the sounds of the prison that, it, that they can hear really strongly, like the slamming loud doors, and they're, they're worrying about whether the courtroom can hear that. So it's their, 
their environment of incarceration being kind of projected on into the courtroom and them worrying about the effect that has. Should we be utilising more video links in actual trials? Does that mean that there should be designated spaces where people go to for video links? I think that's a really interesting issue you've raised. Um, One of the findings of my research um, and that of my colleagues has been that actually there should begin to be what those in the UK I think have started to term accredited spaces. So this idea that the court will inspect a space and kind of deem it suitable, then it can be used as a video link space. I think definitely jurisdictions are moving more towards that kind of an idea. Um, But it seems hard because if you're trying to essentially democratise that practice and say you're able to stream from here, but wait, you have to go to a place that's accredited. Well, you know, I think that's just that's an administrative issue that needs to be worked out over time. I mean, I, I see the point you're making, but I think actually there's a there's a greater issue at stake here, which is the, the nature of the environment of our courtrooms and how, um, how they maintain a respectful environment for all those involved so that they can adequately participate without feeling like they're losing out because of where they're beaming in from. Emma Rowden, Chancellor's Postdoctoral Research Fellow from the University of Technology, Sydney. Lord knows it's time for the legal profession to come into the 21st century with technology. So mm. it's it, That's one of the things that Emma was saying to me as well, is it's just going to fasten up the process, but they really need to kind of take the new protocol into consideration. They can't just say, all of a sudden we're going to include all these video links like you heard in that story. There's a lot of things to consider, and that transition is one that um, ironically might be slow in itself. You're listening to Think Sustainability on 2SCR 107.3. So you're you're the now dubbed reef queen. <laughs> you you've been to the Great Barrier Reef, mm-hmm. but did you did you dive when, when you were there? You uh, you went a while ago. Oh though. yeah, God, this was years ago. But I only ever went snorkeling right. in the Great Barrier Reef. Yeah. So did you you saw kind of like the expanse of yeah? Coral. Well, I I guess I saw it before climate change was really a thing. A, a thing. Well, it was always a thing, but it was really in the psyche as much as it is now. So I'm really, I guess I'm really grateful that that has happened. And I I always feel really upset that, you know, one day maybe my kids won't get to have that experience. Mm, I think though, when it comes to corals or something that seems quite evident is that we always relay it back to the Great Barrier Reef and don't really look outside that area. Actually here in Sydney, there's quite an expansive coral ecosystem Mm, right in the harbour. That's right. So coming up in this story, you're going to hear about a researcher who's diving down into Sydney Harbour, looking at what's happened to the coral ecosystems there since the El Nino event at the beginning of the year, which was fluctuating in sea surface temperatures and the corals seem to be struggling. But they look to be doing not too bad now. When we scuba, we have to wear shark shields and often you're going along doing your doing your business and then there'll be a change in the current or something and and the shark shield will actually zip around and electrocute you on the leg a little bit or sting you on the leg a little bit and it's not painful or anything but you always get a little bit of a shock. This is Samantha Goyan, a PhD researcher from the University of Technology, Sydney. One of Samantha's main research areas is coral which involves a lot of diving down into Sydney Harbour. 
So there's there's like a little electrical thing to kind of steer the sharks away. Yeah, so it sends out just a, a electromagnetic signal basically to detract any any sharks. But I've never seen a big shark in in the harbour, at least a bull shark or anything in the harbour. So it's so all the little guys like the Port Jacksons and the dusky whalers and things. When you're, when you're scuba diving down and looking, are you able to see the bleaching effect that it's had on coral populations where, where you're diving to? Oh, definitely, yeah. So uh, we were routinely monitoring uh, our, these, these two sites and then one day we went out just to do our normal sampling and we, we got down there and we realised that it had all paled. Yeah, we think it bleached in a matter of weeks because I'm, I'm out every few weeks. So uh, it's, yeah, one week it was it was fine. Two or three weeks later, it had, yeah, it had bleached. That's so quick because you, you hear a lot about coral bleaching just in the press and, and stories about it, um, but you kind of don't see it as such like a rapid fire process. Yeah, yeah, it, it can happen very quickly with these these soaring temperatures where it just jumps so quickly. Yeah, it'll bleach quickly. And more on that story now. An aerial survey has shown that 95% of the northern Great Barrier Reef is severely bleached. Of the 520 reefs surveyed, only four showed no evidence of damage. Coral bleaching is caused by abnormally Yeah, so bleaching isn't death necessarily, um, but the key is that the, the stress, whether that be you know increased water temperatures, is short-lived. Uh, if it is sustained, uh, the corals aren't given the chance to recover and then you see the mortality, like we're seeing on the Great Barrier, the northern Great Barrier Reef at the moment. Here in Sydney, uh, the water temperatures dropped quite dramatically, quite rapidly, back to around about normal temperatures, and the corals were given the chance. So they're, they're quite lucky they were given the chance to recover. When the temperatures dropped, how were they able to recover? Like, how was that possible? Uh, coral bleaching is the loss of... Uh, the symbiotic algae from the coral tissue and it's that algae that gives uh, the coral its colour. So any any increase in temperature above average will put the, the coral into a state of stress and if that's sustained it will be pushed to its tipping point. The algae is expelled or it leaves the coral tissue and with a return to cooler temperatures uh, the coral acquires this algae back again and starts to regain its colour and its function. What do you take from this research into their recovery? Like, aside from the fact that they're able to continue to live on, what does that tell us about other bleaching events that these ones are able to recover? By studying the Sydney corals and seeing uh, what properties make them quite hardy, we can determine, I guess, the winners and the losers uh, in extreme stress events and 
better predict what corals might be able to survive. Who are the winners at the moment? Ooh. <laughs> well, obviously the, the Sydney corals are doing okay. Uh, we've had such, in the northern section of the Great Barrier Reef, such mass mortality. I think it's up to 50% at some sites. No real winners if we're talking about the, the northern Great Barrier Reef at the moment, I don't think. Um, have you since been back and dived or gone diving and seen how they have recovered as well? Yeah, definitely. So been going back every few weeks really just to what we mainly do is photograph each of them individually and we can compare this evidence over time to see any changes in in color and the other thing we do is we take the dive it's called a diving pam and it's a fluorometer and basically uh, you hold that up to the coral and you take a, a reading and that indicates coral health so we've been doing that over the recovery period as well. How do you think this message should be communicated? Because if this message were communicated in a way to say, hey, the temperature just dropped back down, these corals are recovering, they're fine, they're, they're hardy, they can do it. Do you think people would get the wrong idea from that? Yeah, that's something we have to be careful of because, you know, the Sydney corals were lucky. They, they were given another chance. We're not sure if this El Nino bleaching event occurred in isolation. Uh, if it occurs again, we're not sure... Uh, say next year we're not sure how the corals will respond Uh, so the way we see this is is it's it's nature's warning shot cooler climates uh, cooler uh, habitats aren't immune to the effects of uh, increasing uh, sea surface temperatures and we're not sure how these corals will respond if it happens again maybe they won't survive it next time yeah it's hard yeah we're not sure Uh, at the moment we can be thankful that they they, they did, they were given the, the chance, um, but we just can't have consistent stress events because, yeah, corals won't, won't survive that. Samantha Goyant, PhD researcher from the University of Technology, Sydney. So, Jake, you, I'm guessing you recycle at home. Yeah, well, like everyone like, how, does. Could, how could I know? It's like the first thing drilled into your head as a child these yeah, days. Yeah, that's right. And we all give ourselves a pat on the back when we put that empty milk carton or the cereal box in the recycling bin. But at the end of the day, it, it's still waste, right? Yeah, I, I know what you mean in terms of actually tracking where that's going because you just assume, like, they're chucking it into the garbage truck. Are they taking it all to the same place? I know it's different bin days, but where where is it actually going? And is it being repurposed for something? Yeah, is it actually when things are actually made from 100% recycled products mm. like is it actually being recycled products and the next guy that we're going to talk to is actually looking at this from a completely different angle not one in terms of waste but actually what you can unlock with these products and using chemistry to do so this is Bradley Williams he is the associate head of school at the school of mathematical and physical sciences and a chemist so my first <laughs> question to him was does the chemistry lab live up to that stereotype that everyone's a mad scientist? 
it's not it, it's not the frenzied mad scientist <laughs> <laughs> approach that you see on TV in the same way that real forensics isn't the same as NCIS. Yeah. The focus of my research isn't really on repurposing materials, but it's it's more on finding improved ways by which industry can do what they already do. But that requires an experiment, doesn't it? Oh, it does. Like, what's that? Hundreds. What's this experiment? You've got your Bunsen burner, you've got everything. <laughs> what does that look like? I like, what are you doing with your hands? Well, what we do with our hands, again, is, is, is quite different from what you see on TV. So certainly there's lots of glassware and lots of pipes and tubes. We'll have our round bottom flasks and mm. we'll have pipes that go into them and we'll be adding materials. Very, very little smokes and fumes. So, of course, you always <laughs> see the smoking and the fumes. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a controlled environment. It's all controlled. And again, just uh, simply conducting experiment after experiment because mostly what we're doing has never been done before. So we're trying to figure things out and it takes, it, it takes a long time, in most instances a long, long time and hundreds upon hundreds of experiments to do that. Mm. And, but when we get the breakthrough, oh, it's, all, it's, it's just so, so well worth it. Do you have an example of a breakthrough like that, that eureka moment? Oh, quite, quite a few. Um, <laughs> you know, many of them obviously are, are, are quite technical. So if you think of the juicing industry, we, we have an orange, we cut it in half, we juice what we can, and what's left is the pith as well as the skin. So what do we do with that? We and, normally and, chuck that out. Well, that, that's, that's right. And So how would you find from a chemistry angle purpose in in the pith or the, or, or the skin? Well, there, there, there's several valuable materials in there. So in the case of the orange, uh, there's, there's the oil firstly. So we can strip out the oil and the oil has flavor and fragrance possibilities and, and it can go back into foods. And then what we're left with really is cellulose type material. Which, and so cellulose, is if you think of paper, paper is principally cellulose. So it comes from a tree, the tree is processed and we, we have cellulose that's converted into paper. To go back to the example of the orange about using the certain insides or the skin, why aren't we already utilizing these things? There is quite a strong move to doing that. In many cases, we're already recovering materials. So the orange is just, is, is just one example. The agricultural industry is, is probably the best example. If you think of a carrot, the tops of the carrots are simply cut off. If you think of peas and beans, these grow in the fields and the pods are, have been traditionally just left in the fields mm. or, or plowed in. But now we understand that these pods and, and many parts of the plant contain lots of protein and so they, they are reprocessed into animal feed. So right. in, in the past they were simply composted, just tilled back into the soil and now they're processed into, into animal feed. Mm. And repurposing, for example, the the carrot tops or the pods that the beans come in, what uh, what is that practice as in getting farmers to then collect their crop and then separating them and then the pods are then shipped off? Like, is it about installing that practice on that level to make sure that the things go in the right direction? Yes. Well, there, there are two parts to it. One is developing the technology. So we need to have the technology available to be able to perform these practices. So if and where you come in with the chemistry as yeah, well. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. But And the other is the educational side of it. Is this a practice that they would adopt? Because I guess if you even just bring this back to an individual level, 
it, we could even use the example of recycling. So I might be lazy and put my paper into the bin when I would recycle it. And then putting that into commercial context by separating these and finding other purposes, is that labour-intensive and cost-intensive and something that they wouldn't want to consider? All of those, yes. It is labour-intensive and it is cost-intensive. One of the major challenges with recycling and recovery is this distribution of the materials all over the place, at your house, at mine. And as you correctly identify that, in many cases, the materials are contaminated. We might have our paper bin, but sometimes other things end up in there. And so we have to separate that out. What challenges does that present to you as a chemist? As a chemist, what I have tried to focus on is think about the principles and practices in the way that reduces our footprint in the environment. For example, if we can reduce our consumption of electricity. And it's thinking about chemistry and chemical practices in the same way. That actually poses an interesting question in terms of um, electricity or energy. What potential is there for the repurposing of certain materials as an energy source? People who understand energy talk about energy density. That really means how much energy can you get out of a certain amount of material. So if, if we think about it, petrol, if you burn petrol, you can get a certain amount of energy out of it. And that will be different from the, same, from the energy you can get out of the same mass of paper that you burn, for example. Or orange peels. Or <laughs> orange peels. Yeah, that's right. So we've, we've been talking about orange peels and all that stuff. If there's like potential in, in a strange material that we might already be discarding for it to be as an energy source, is there, do you know anything about that or any examples that they're finding potential energy in, in something bizarre? Or? Well, I suppose a, a pretty good example is, is in the, the wood processing industry, so the paper industry. One of their side streams is called black liquor. And, and so they, they take the wood, they chip it, and they process it. And then you get this beautiful white cellulose that comes out, and you can manufacture these, these lovely papers that we use. And one of the, the side streams is, is called this black, black liquor. And in the past, this was disposed of. But more current practices would be to, to burn the black liquor because there's, there's lots of material in there that can be burnt. And... Therefore, instead of, in, instead of importing electricity to the plant, the, the plant would burn this black liquor and generate its own electricity. Plant. How would that compare to something like coal? You're never going to get the, the same energy out of the black liquor as, as you can from coal. But also remember that when we mine coal, we, we're talking about millions of tons mm. of coal and we just don't have the same access to black liquor. It, it's never going to be a replacement. So the individual factories that process wood for, for paper production, they can burn the black liquor and thereby they can reduce their dependence on external sources mm -hmm. of electricity. But it, it's, it's, it's never going to be a source of, of exporting electricity from the plant uh, in, into the general electricity grid. Bradley Williams, Associate Head of School at the School of Mathematical and Physical Sciences. Thanks for listening to the show. Think Sustainability is produced with the assistance of the University of Technology Sydney and 2SER. For more information about what you've heard today, head to our website, 2SER.com forward slash Think Sustainability. You can also subscribe to us on your favourite podcast app. Just search for Think Sustainability. 
I'm Ellen Lee Beta. I'm Jake Morecambe. See you next week.